This is the BBC. Thank you for listening to the In Our Time podcast. We have no new edition this week because on Thursday the 29th of March 2018, with a year to go until Britain's scheduled departure from the European Union, Radio 4 has been broadcasting a number of special programmes instead. In its place, we're sharing an edition from June 2014 about Hildegard of Bingen. We're back next week with Roman Slavery. Hello. If you'd walked into the Abbey of the Monastery Trier in Germany 850 years ago, it's quite possible that this is what you would have heard. That is Oe Cari, a piece of sacred music by the 12th century composer Hildegard of Bingen. Little known until 30 years ago, the music of Hildegard is now regarded as among the best of the Middle Ages, but remarkably, her music is only a small aspect of her overall achievement. Hildegard was a 12th century nun and a scholar of impressive breadth. Sometimes known as the Sibyl of the Rhine, she wrote a series of works documenting prophetic visions she'd experienced. She was an accomplished theologian who also wrote about science, medicine and the natural world. Held in high regard by royalty and religious figures alike, she's long been revered as a saint, although it was not until 2012 that she was officially canonised by Pope Benedict. With me to discuss Hildegard of Bingen are Mary Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary, University of London, William Flynn, lecturer in medieval Latin at the University of Leeds, and Almut Suerbaum, professor of medieval German at the University of Oxford. Mary Rubin Hildegard was born around 1098 in the Rhineland, in what we now call Western Germany. Would you give us some idea of what was going on then at that time? Yes, the Rhineland is part of what was known by then the Holy Roman Emperor or the Holy Empire. Now, this is the vast political entity that englobes most of Germany of today, but also Italy and parts of eastern France of today. This is a vast continental block that was ruled by, from the year 800 on, by an emperor. Now, what makes an emperor different from a king, a mere king, is that this is an emperor crowned and endorsed by the Pope. So in the Middle Ages, for and until 1802, in fact, the Holy Roman Empire is this sort of confederation of large parts of Europe, made up of Saxony, Bavaria, Franconia, regions people will still exist today in a meaningful way. And uh, this obviously creates a tremendous sort of political challenge because the emperor doesn't have a standing army, can't tax everywhere. In a way, the Holy Roman Empire is an idea. And it's an idea that depends on buying in. Now, during most of the life of Hildegard, that idea is very much uh, in, in turmoil. There's internal civil war as to which family indeed will hold the imperial crown. But also, and most importantly for her, what does the emperor owe to the Pope? Can you give us some idea of the place of monasteries, nunneries and such like institutions at that time? Extremely important, really central, big central centres of religious life for the elite. So we have to remember that these institutions are founded by the elite, indeed by emperors and empresses themselves, but are also inhabited and run on the whole by elite persons. You have to bring a sort of dowry if you're a nun into your nunnery with you. You have to have some property to contribute. So this is a way of life that is 
deeply privileged and has tremendous impact, although they're few in number, the nuns and monks, tremendous influence on religious life and on political life because they come from those leading families. More than that, though, I mean, when you get the Cistercians, they have a big impact on economic life, don't they? Enormous, and the Cistercians... With the sheep, especially in this country. With we the sheep, very especially sheep. in Yorkshire, and yeah. parts that are very close to your heart. So, yes, the Cistercians are, in a way, a new arrival at the very end of the 11th century that exactly challenge that long arrangement of elite monasticism. Now it's monks who will work with their hands. Have you any idea of the numbers of the monasteries and nunneries? Because the, 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 all sorts of things went on. Medicine went on, herbal gardens went on, singing went on, teaching went on. They are really what is making, let's call it Europe, Europe, or the empire, the empire in a way. Absolutely, yes. They made Europe. And again, to emphasize, they may be few in number in terms of participants, a few of tens of thousands across Europe, but their impact is way, way beyond that in terms of the religious development, intellectual development, hospitality, provision of charity, but above all, just continuing and perpetuating that model of the perfect Christian life. Thank you. William Flynn, what's known about Hildegard's background? Well, it fits into the picture that's just been described in that she came from a, a noble family. They were landowners. Uh, she was born in Bemersheim. That's uh, her father, Hildebert, and her was a noble, and her mother as well, Mechtelt. Um, she wasn't doesn't fit the picture of a saint very well because uh, they normally are beautiful women who who then give up all prospect of marriage. Um, she seemed to be a different kind of little girl. She had visions. She reported as early as five years old. She wasn't very well. Um, and so the prospects for marriage were different. And so she was actually given into the care of another noblewoman who had had a more typical uh, view. Her, that was Jutta of Spanheim. And she went to... Um, live with Jutta for about six years. Uh, Hildegard was eight years old at that point. Was she given in terms of a tithe? She was the tenth child, as I understand it. Uh, so in my notes, it says she was given as a child, known as an oblate. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're writhing in your seat, I see. Ah, uh, yes. Right, <laughs> well, okay, well, we she, was, she was the tenth child, we, we, uh, so far as Guibert Jean Blue says, her last uh, biographer. And he's... A, he is uh, an unreliable witness. Uh, he tries to make her into a perfect uh, Benedictine saint. We know the names of eight children. It's quite possible there were ten, and it's quite possible she was Why did tithed. they put in the care of Jutta, this uh, aristocratic uh, holy well, woman? Well, the Sponheim family, which uh, she was a member of, was regionally one of the more powerful families, so that was a good move on the part of... Uh, noble family that didn't have as much uh, uh, capital, really. So so to make a connection with the Sponheim family, but also because Jutta had, had uh, insisted against the will of her family that she was going into a religious life. Jutta was only six years older than Hildegard. So when Hildegard went to live with her at eight years old, Jutta was only 14 years old. Um, when they uh, and Jutta seems to have resisted her family quite a bit. She wanted to go on pilgrimage, uh, but they maneuvered her into deciding to become part of a monastery. And so when Hildegard was 14, that would make, hold on just a second, not make Jutta 20, exactly. that's right. Um, they together 
entered uh, uh, nunnery monastic life? Well, they entered a, a, a male monastery uh, of Dusseldorf. Uh, which was actually fairly recently made a Benedictine monastery. It was only being built in uh, the the new church was being built starting in 1108. So 1112, there wasn't really much of it there. So what did they go for? They went, um, according to Guibert, to be completely immured as if they were dead, enclosed, with no contact with the outside world. But well, that's that, about food and water and stuff. What? There must have been fed food, water, water uh, through a window, all contact through a window. Their priest might have lived uh, in a cell that were joined, but also contact through a window, and the priest connected with the church through a window. But uh, no one has been able to find this anchor hold, and it seems to be another possibility that it was a different kind of enclosure, enclosed within the monastery, but operating almost like an, uh, a women's uh, convent. But from the beginning, it was an intense religious life. Very, very much. Uh, with another woman uh, and devoted uh, to the ideals of Christianity. Ab absolutely, and Yuta herself was very ascetic. Uh, she, she was not... Um, she, she would have been quite reasonably educated at home. She would have known how to read in Latin. She taught... Uh, Hildegard how to read certainly and how and recite the Psalms and that is about the extent of what Hildegard acknowledges as her education uh, because she does call her later on an unlearned woman it seems that Hildegard who's obviously a bright star intellectually is uh, feels somewhat constrained by the life that she's been put into. I read that she'd also taught her to play a musical instrument a ten stringed no? We bear again. Uh, it's <laughs> so, a very reliable. Um, well, why do you put it in the notes? Um, and I get foxed. <laughs> <laughs> the the ten string kithera uh, is probably allegorical. It probably it relates to the Ten Commandments and the uh, virtuous life. It is not. It's not not improbable that she learned how to play an instrument. It would be more likely to be uh, learning how to sing via uh, the normal monastic instrument of the monochord. So they're in that place together, part of a, a larger, th we think now part of a monastery, but mm. and closed inside that as nunnery for how long? Well, the eventually uh, Hildegard leaves. Uh, in, I don't want to go right but, the end, but, but that's how long a, are they in that particular state? The two of them. Um, we don't really know because we don't know. How, we 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 know that the community expanded, and it expanded to about uh, ten by the time that Yuta was ailing. That's fine. Okay. Um, now I've turned over two pages. <laughs> so here we are, Amut. Uh, Hildegard, she eventually became a very erudite person. Now, where did she find the books? And that's, who taught her? That's where the Benedictine monasteries play the most important role. Mary had already alluded to the fact that they are very important politically, they are important in terms of theological learning, but they are also just places of intellectual learning. They have libraries and books, and for a Benedictine monk, and clearly also for the women associated with them in Dizzy Bordenberg, the day is structured by a variety of activities, so they pray regularly, but in between those spaces, they also listen to readings of texts by the Church Fathers, they listen to Gospels which are explained through the commentaries of the Church Fathers, and in almost all Benedictine monasteries we know, they also spend time writing, creating the books that they will then read and study. 
So she's reading Bede, she's reading, is she reading Augustine, is she reading the great commentators? Yes, we don't, what she doesn't do in her writing is to quote, that right. sort of scholastic habit of a different tradition of writing. But it's very clear that when she says she is in doctor, she doesn't mean she is uneducated. She means she's writing in a different format, in a Benedictine format, where they are imbued in the range of texts they've read, and that would be Augustine and Bede, it would be Robanus Maurus, the great commentator, and it's likely to have been also contemporary figures like Rupert of Deutz. But the classical learning movement that was coming back into Europe at that time passes her by, doesn't it? The trivium and all that sort of thing. She's not attached to that at all? I wouldn't quite say it passes her by. Again, that's sometimes what's said when she's presented as uneducated. But... One of the first statements when she says that in the visions what she gains is an immediate insight into the meaning, she also um, qualifies that and says she doesn't get uh, a commentary into the grammatical structure of the sentences. And that's not just a statement of what she doesn't know, but I think it's also a programmatic statement of what she doesn't want to do. It's an awareness of the fact that others in the schools in Paris start doing grammatical commentaries, um, do... um, studies of grammar, rhetoric and dialectics and that is not her way of reading and it's not her way of writing. So I think she's aware of that um, emerging new way of writing and she I think quite programmatically places herself in a different tradition in now, a Benedictine tradition. Sorry, excuse me. But Norris as I understand it then had male confessors who came and one of them who turned up there was Volmar who stayed with her for 60 years as her confessor, as a, let's call it, secretary, companion, aide, and also, one presumes, uh, a tutor. Is that right? It's clearly a relationship of dialogue between them. He is her secretary. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux had at least three secretaries simultaneously. So it's a common practice that's not just um, something for women who themselves can't write. Um, so it's a relationship which is clearly about theological discussions. He is her confessor and he is her spiritual guide. Why do you think it lasted so long? They clearly work together very well. Um, she comments on the fact that he advises in the composition of the Scivias, uh, but so does uh, Ricardis, one of her nuns. So it's a group of people with whom she talks. In uh, 1136, as far as we know, it could have been 3537, but in 1136, Jutta died, and quite soon afterwards, Hildegard went and founded her own establishment uh, near Bingen. Uh, um, how did she manage to do that? It's quite a bold step, and it clearly required quite a lot of political negotiation as well as theological she determination. Seems to be good at that. Uh, she seems to be very good at that, <laughs> and she clearly met quite a lot of resistance, not just because it was an unusual thing for a woman to do, but also for purely economical reasons. The aristocratic women who had come to join that, that convent at Dizzy Bordenbach came with a very large dowry. So the monks themselves weren't really all that keen on losing both their main spiritual attraction by that time and the dowries. So what we have in the letters is extensive negotiations about quite what the economical status of the new monastery is going to be. And she inter- she gets the mother uh, of one of her young nuns to help her negotiate the purchase of the land on which and the first And a strategic found. time she takes to a sickbed, we are told. Anyway, she gets her way she does. Uh, and moves. Uh, Mary Rubin, we've got a movement at that time for the reform of the church. Uh, now, it's, this is elliptical, OK. But how was Hildegard involved in that? Yes, this is really interesting. It really 
takes off in a big way from the mid-11th century, this idea that the church should be free, libertas ecclesiae, the church should be free from interference by uh, secular authorities, because at the end of, you know, in a way, the Pope and the spirituals and the priests are answerable for the souls even of the greatest king or emperor. And slowly, slowly from the mid-11th century, this is associated particularly with a Pope called Gregory VII, trying to claim that. So the big stumbling block with the emperors, and that's what's important in the context of Hildegard, is that the popes increasingly demand that for appointments to bishoprics, this should be an appointment made by popes and not by emperors, because these are spiritual leaders. But of course, these are also very important political figures, so the emperors want to be able to appoint them. And this comes to absolute confrontation throughout the 11th and early 12th century. She is very aware of this. It also comes to the fact that when you have when you have a schism between emperor and pope, sometimes the emperor goes and appoint his own pope, an anti-pope. And then what do you do? Who is a bishop in Germany to be loyal to? Who is indeed an abbess to be loyal to? Which pope? The local one appointed by her emperor or the one appointed by the pope in Rome, who is the head of the whole church organization? And Hildegard finds this extremely, extremely vexing. Within this great moment of movement of reform, and as you mentioned earlier, there are also reforms particularly of monasticism to constantly invigilate on the strict living within monasteries and so on. And it's very striking that when she creates her new monastery, uh, her, her new nunnery, you know, these aristocratic ladies moving to a new land, the buildings aren't finished, there are no comforts, they complain. And she has to confront these complaints of these aristocratic ladies. So she's really vexed by two streams of reform. She wants to see the Pope ruling religious appointments. She also wants to see a really strong reforming spirit within monasticism itself, which is, of course, her daily her daily work, as it were. And her letters are all about raising consciousness, getting people engaged, as engaged as she is, in this work, which is to her a daily toil you know, bringing people on board, reminding them how great are the challenges. And she's a great letter writer too. In case we don't have time to get back to it, 400 letters, an enormous cash, and to everybody, popes, kings, other, and so on. Um, William Flynn, she became... I'm sorry about this hackneyed word. She did become famous because of her visions and the publication mm. of her visions. Mm. Now, without going about... Jutta dies in... Let us say 1136. <laughs> Fine. Uh, the big visions come in, let us say 1141. They may have started earlier, mm. but when they come in 1141, a voice demands that she writes them down. This seems to me enough of a difference to be a starting point. Can you just tell us what these, the first lot contained? Well, By that time, she's 43 years old-ish. Um, the the first uh, the 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 visions that uh, came in 1141 authorized her first book, and that really would be the contents of the uh, of the book came in in a series of visions, and that's why she she wrote down that was uh, called Scivius Know the Ways. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about her visionary <laughs> experience in general, if that's all right. Please do um, her. Her manner of seeing, that she described her manner of seeing several times during her life, and she tried to differentiate this considerably from everyone else um, because visions quite typically come in ecstasy, so a kind of trance, or uh, in um, dreams. Those are the two normal ways of visions. Uh, Hildegard insisted that all of her visions except for one came in... um, 
waking moments while she was completely awake. And they seem to me, anyway, to be related to the kinds of listening to things read to you, absorbing a lot of material, and then sudden flash, where all of that makes sense, all of her memorized material comes to her as a picture. That is actually related to memory techniques that are taught to Benedictines and taught since classical times. And so I think she's hooking a lot of all, all of the learning and all of her knowledge onto these visions, and that vision in 1141 that creates the book Scivius. She, she says in the uh, preface that she had sudden understanding of everything. Uh, that means all the expositions, all the writings of the church fathers, all the scientific material. She says it all made sense to her at once, and it came to her in a series of pictures that then she wrote a book for, to explain what every element of each picture meant in very, very uh, detailed manner that would be teaching for the rest of her nuns. And that, a long book, and a substantial... Yeah. I mean, six, huge. Yeah, <laughs> 600 pages. This huge. is the first of several yeah. books, but it, yeah, she starts but long. It, is, it took her 10 years, actually, yeah. to, 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 to complete, uh, maybe even slightly more than 10 years. Almut, uh, uh, she documented these visions then in, let's say, three major works, and the first of which has been mentioned by William the Scivias. Can you just tell us a bit about that work? It, and the Scivias being no, isn't it? That's right. Uh, so it's Know the Ways of the Lord, right. and the title is probably a, uh, an abbreviation of that word. It's a composed in three books, uh, Learned Structure, 26 Visions divided between these three books and very clearly structured. So the first book is about the creation and the creator God, the second book about salvation history, um, and uh, sorry, the second about salvation and the third about salvation history. So it addresses some of the central aspects of Christian faith the status of the creator God in quite abstract images. So it starts with a vision of light emanating from the peak of a mountain. Um, and at the same time, these images in the manuscripts we have, and manuscripts that are probably composed very close to her lifetime, and perhaps with some input by her, also have illuminations. Um, so all the central moments, the central or the key image of most of these visions is illuminated, sometimes not in exactly the same way as we read in the text. But it highlights very clearly that vision and the visual are the central aspect of creating often quite unusual or quite unusually composed images which are then elucidated and explained. This is probably impossible to answer briefly, but, but can you give us some idea of the way she wrote? Was it matter-of-fact? Was it ecstatic? Was it allegorical? How did she... It's both prophetic and one could say allegorical. Um, another way to describe it is symbolist. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the kind of thinking from so which she comes. Have you got a paragraph uh, to mind or something? Something you can help us? She explains the images she sees um, and she reveals that she is a prophet. So the images which are given to her by divine inspiration are there to communicate with others. What so are these images? They are, the images are about light, about light emanating from a mountain, about glittering gleams of light, and they are comments on the state of the church, the state of Christian life, um, and about uh, the nature of salvation. 
Mary? What's interesting is that she uses very often, and we see this in the illustrations so close to her manuscripts, figures of women, just figures of women as ecclesia, church, as wisdom. Well, ecclesia is feminine, so she's bound to... Be, yes. uh, no, it's helpful, isn't it? Right, uh, right, yeah. So the idea is, but but it's very hard to describe an answer to your question because <laughs> it's not a narrative. It doesn't have chapter divisions in a clear way. It is these pictures that are described by her inexorably. But it's all, it's perfect. Can you give it's us more pictures? I mean, I'm fascinated. I presume, yeah, okay. I therefore presume <laughs> everybody else is. One, one that I've worked with uh, is uh, the uh, um, I- images of the angelic host, which is done in a series of concentric circles. And it has... Uh, this is because we're talking about... Uh, 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 it, it, it's illustrated. So yes, it's not, illustrated, so actually. The, the illustration it's, of the angelic host is concentric circles. Concentric circles, right, okay. nine concentric circles with the normal nine uh, angelic host. I won't name them all, <laughs> but uh, two, two angels, archangels, and then five uh, powers, and then two cherubim and seraphim. That um, that is around a, a, a what could be interpreted as a, a mirror, which is, which is the the angels are light, they're reflecting God's light, and the mirror is part of the reflection of it. Uh, that's the that's that image though is interestingly related to two other images. One of the Trinity, which has uh, also concentric circles, but it has a, a sapphire figure, a human figure in the middle of it, and then colors of gold and silver to to make uh, the uh, Trinitarian one. That image also is reflected in another one which is about the sacraments of the church especially baptism where that trinitarian figure sort of dissolves into a blue pool so sapphire again and gold and silver around and then it becomes a baptismal font so the images are active they add to the text and they create uh, enormous uh, interest And Bill had referred to the materiality of these images. Most of them use spectacular amounts of gold leaf and silver, so they also reflect the light. But there is another set of images, and that's (coughs) there in the writing of the visions as well. So she starts with a divine light, but there is immediately the story of Lucifer, um, and there are visions of hell and of the abyss. Um, And equally, she she seems to be very, very exercised by purgatory. Yeah. That's right, and that's the first discussion. She's also very exercised about the state of the church. So the image um, Miri had referred to is a very striking and 19th century editor found very shocking image. Are of- these prophetic warnings, Ahmed? Is she mm-hmm. saying, watch out, or is she saying, look what is to come, or is she saying, what's she saying? They're both. Um, what's often foregrounded is the critical stance, um, and 13th century manuscripts start to highlight the apocalyptic, the warning, watch out for the state of the church, you need to reform, you need to change your ways. And some of those are explained quite explicitly. Others convey very clear senses of criticism, but in a, an oracular way. And what's really sorry. Can I just say that it's what's very do. important in all of this, because we're, we're so getting carried away with how rich is her message Always, always emphasizing, this isn't my idea. God tells me this. I am as nothing. I am a channel. I am an aqueduct. I am merely conveying this. So people will listen to her because she's not claiming to be a wise woman, a clever woman. She is just the chosen woman, perhaps for her unlearnedness, she says. Therefore, she's a pure vehicle. Because there's no place for a woman to get up and talk in the church in the 12th century. Absolutely not. So she treads this very fine line of explosion of ideas, communicating with everyone, and yet from a position of, as it were, subordination totally to divine will. William, do you want to come in here? Well, I... I, I 
was just going to add a footnote to that. I mean, she does claim that she doesn't write like the philosophers write. That can be taken two ways, really. It can be taken as an idea that you write like a, a, a divinely inspired person writes, not like somebody who's been schooled the right way. Or it could also be taken to be you write like a monk writes, not like a philosopher. And I think she's really got a critical stance about what's going on outside the monastery. Is there any sense, Alma, given people prophetic, that she, and she knows the Bible so well, that she bases herself on any of the Old Testament prophets or indeed the Gospel writers in the New Testament? She does indeed, and that's very clear. So she models herself on some of the Old Testament prophets. She's criticised by one of her letter writers, um, and he tries a put-down by comparing her to Balaam's ass, uh, who <laughs> gives prophetic visions by divine. And her reply is a model of very politely, but also very firmly uh, putting him in his place, uh, telling him that his time is about to come, because, and that's a very clear political comment, uh, he's in trouble with his diocese by that stage and dies within a year of that letter. But the extraordinary thing, Mary, is that these make her famous in, let's call it Christendom. Everywhere. Uh, uh, everywhere, yes. Yeah. So she's a saintly person in a nun, aristocratic, that helps. Lots of money coming in from aristocratic women joining mm-hmm. her, that helps. Therefore, connections in the political, high political warrior aristocratic, that helps. But it's these visions published which go out and she becomes a famous person. She does. Just an example. John of Salisbury, one of the great intellectuals of the 12th century, you know, England, Paris, Bishop of Chartres. He writes in the 1160s to another uh, important uh, monk who's travelling in Germany, could you get your hands on some copies of these amazing visions of Hildegard? I think she may have the solution to the troubles of the church. I want to read them. Now, this is a leading intellectual in 12th century Europe. And this enables her to be to have very successful succession of rows. She has a lot of rows, Mary, doesn't she? She does. Have I'm a sorry lot of to rows. use this 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 rather vulgar vernacular term, but she does seem to take exception to people, and then she goes for them. And if, if she doesn't get her own way, if this is really bad. You'll tell me I'm completely wrong and trivial. But it seems to me if she doesn't get her own way, she takes to her sickbed until she does. She takes to her sickbed. She sends really really scary letters. No, all the strategies of being heard and taken seriously. But you know, and the interesting thing is that she will invest the same degree of passion into, say, uh, an argument with, say, a favourite nun who's appointed elsewhere and has to leave, and she's cross that she has to leave, as she will with uh, the Bishop uh, of Mainz or the Abbot of of, of Disabodenburg uh, over issues of ecclesiastical property and arrangements. And it's almost a consistent level of, of powerful, this sort of passion that she brings to everything she does. Helma, can you briefly say what's the significance of this great cache of letters, these 400 or so letters? It's almost unheard of. I think only Bernard of Clairvaux is uh, a writer with more letters that survive. What we have are letters written by her and we have some of the letters written to her as well. So in some cases we have a two-way correspondence. It's collected in her lifetime or shortly afterwards and probably also redacted. So what we see is a public persona through the correspondence and it really ranges from letters to Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the very earliest ones where she consults him about whether she should carry on writing down her visions and he encourages her very firmly to do that uh, to letters to the emperor uh, letters of criticism to her fellow bishops but also letters where she's asked for advice by a woman whose husband is terminally ill and to whom she replies about how to prepare for a good death or letters from fellow abbesses who clearly have trouble running their own convent and to whom she gives advice 
William, William Flynn, uh, she, as we started this programme with a, a small piece of music we couldn't resist, and the producer was all for it, um, being, having been a great singer in his youth. Um, when, what's distinctive about her music? It's curious that it was not known for 800 years, that makes it more fun, but what is distinctive about well, when you look at it now? The, the, the main thing to emphasise with her music is it's a combination of music and words, and it's that combination of completely fresh poetry with unusual but regionally recognisable music. Did she write the poetry? Hmm? Did yeah, she, she wrote herself. the poetry? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. And brilliant. the poetry is brilliant. absolutely brilliant. And it's in Latin? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, right. okay. uh, she, she wrote in Latin, just not yeah. like the philosophers, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, she, and, and what it does is it condenses her visions... So, so the music completes. She she reported in in Scythius that she, everything that she had heard in all the books that she'd written came back reprised in the music, and then the words often relate to visions, and then the music uh, perfects them. That's did she work out of an existing tradition? Yes, yes indeed. Uh, and, well, she and in fact, it's, an it's, issue. It's, but what was that, and how did it affect um, her? It, it is. It is a, 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 of largely South German uh, translated through Hirsau Reform Monastery Networks. So William of uh, William of Hirsau and uh, Theodor of Metz are two people. Uh, but the fundamental people are uh, Hermanus Contractus and Berna uh, of Reichenau. They created a chant theory that um, also influenced the actual compositional style so that the it doesn't sound like Gregorian chant, but it sounds much more modern, even modern in our terms, because it has a very strong fundamental note and a strong note at the fifth. So that's so, so that's the regional style. She is different, though. Mary. What's really also important to remember is she writes the music, she composes the music, and also in her nunnery, she allowed her nuns to perform it in extraordinary ways. In fact, people complain. She allows them to wear glorious white shimmering garments, beautiful crowns. So when they perform, it's like a total, you know, Gesamtkunstwerk, as where it's a performance in the round. So they're living this liturgy. It's very, very real. Almond. And during one of her great rows, when they have uh, they've held a service for an excommunicated member, they are forbidden to sing during their services. They're allowed to read mass, but not to sing. And she writes impassioned letters about the fact that that deprives them of yes. part of their spirituality. She also, as I read, was was a pre pre was a she preached in public. Mm. Most unusual to preach at all, but in public, extraordinary. Now, can you tell us about that, Almond? Yes, she preaches in public. She travels in to other convents to preach. They're not public sermons to lay people, as far as we know. They are the kinds of sermon commentaries uh, that monastic foundations do during mealtimes, for example. But they are composed <coughs> like sermons. So she takes parts of the gospel, explains them, uh, referring to the commentaries, and she takes on the voice of a preacher, except that, again, she usually stresses that she's been invited to speak. Um, so there is a double legitimization. She's authorised because she speaks through God, uh, and she speaks that which uh, God has inspired her to say, and she speaks because others have asked her uh, and they seek her advice. Mary Rubin, uh, can we tell, say something about her medical texts and scientific texts? What ground do they cover and how rich, what do they add up to? They cover absolutely everything. I mean, literally, the regime of the body through all, for men, women, through all stages of life. 
And there's also scientific work that's specifically about um, sort of, you know, nature. That is about uh, flora, fauna, Does stones, and their qualities. Does she get a lot of this from the qualities. herbal garden? Excuse me, sorry, I interrupted you. No, yes, well, this we reconnect. Yes, we reconnect your earlier earlier question because the Benedictines obviously have a tradition of theology and so on, but do remember that throughout the early Middle Ages, since late antiquity, in the monasteries, every monastery had a full collection of herbals, medical books, and so on. After all, these are institutions that have to care for themselves and also offer care for others. So medical books are galore, recipes, etc. So anyone who has access to a monastic library and is able to read Latin as clearly she could would be able to access this material and in her case bring them to a tremendous synthesis. And I must say the way she talks about particularly sexuality, uh, conception, things she did not experience herself in an active way. What you talking about sexuality for? Because she is guiding Christians through oh, these texts, right. and she believes in marriage and procreation, so she talks about uh, she talks about sexuality very, very explicitly, and very evocative ways. That shows the working of her imagination as well as her knowledge from this very strong monastic tradition of medical writings. It's a tremendous compilation. William Person and Alma. Okay, well, uh, uh, her knowledge of sexuality. Um, she did have widows as part of the composition of the monastery. She also had lay sisters. Um, there's some evidence that some of the lay sisters were married, so that that might be a possibility even. Um, at least one of them reports that Hildegard helped her through two um, pre- problematic pregnancies in um, her youth. So I think she was almost... Myriad stressed that she writes in Latin and she chooses to write in Latin, but the medicinal writings are also the ones where she occasionally uses vernacular words words. because Mm. she clearly knows some of these Mm. things through observations in the garden, Mm. through talking to people, Um, and she occasionally also includes these cures which are a mix between benediction, incantation and charm, Uh, again, probably through practices that she encounters. Are these cures then taken up in later books that are folk medicine right through from the Middle Ages, Renaissance... Not right through the Middle Ages, because in some ways she's then overtaken by the new Salaternian learned medicine Mm. uh, from Italy, but very much in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, the other way in which Hildegard is known, certainly in Germany, is as an alternative herbal. um, Today. Mm. Yes, very much. But in York in the 14th century, York Minster had copies of her medical books, for example. So it could reach certain places because of her renown. Also, her scientific writings uh, were were really important for her last set of visions. Are we talking scientific in, in, in terms of astronomy and mathematics, that sort of thing? Yes, uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. yes uh, and uh, astronomy is very important. Astronomy is incredibly important. Yes, uh, and 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 they they structure a large amount of uh, the last work, which is Liber Divinorum Operum, her last great work, which shows congruences between the uh, humanity, uh, the world, and uh, the divine plan. It's quite extraordinary. Let's go back to Volmar for a second or two. I mean, you see, are they working together? It seems an extraordinary thing for someone to do Italian on their own. He was with her for 60 years. He was a learned man. He gave up his, let's call it, career Mm -hmm. to be with her, Mm -hmm. to aid her. Would have been a career. 
Yeah. yeah, it would have been a career. We have a really good example of a sister visionary in the Rhineland, uh, uh, Elizabeth of Schönau, whose brother, who was really educated expert, also he gave up his career to sit and be her secretary, as it were. But the interesting thing is that neither of them is remembered so very powerfully. Mm-hmm. Definitely Volmar, not so much as Hildegard herself, because her sense of authorship was overwhelming, mm-hmm. and that is why even today she is like she is the patron saint of the Die Grüne, the Greens in Germany. She is considered to be uh, someone who is impacted on thinking about the environment. You can go to any sort of really, really worthy uh, um, bakery in mm. Germany and you get Hildegard brought, which is whole meal it's and healthy. It's almost like abstract science. We're often finding on the programme and people doing things for, out of curiosity and because they're consumed with intellectual, uh, intellectual curiosity. A few hundred years later, it turns to be the most important thing in the world. It seems to be not... Unlike what's going on here, but we're near the end. Can you tell us a bit about her last year or so, William? Well, that we've already re- talked about the interdict. Uh, she buried uh, a person in, uh, in her uh, graveyard, which she had the rights for burial rights. But it turns out that he was considered excommunicate by Mainz. And so they put the whole whole um, convent under interdict, which meant they could not receive sacraments, they could not sing, which was the biggest problem for her. Volmar died in, a, in a 1173. That was a huge loss for, for Hildegard, and she writes very, very movingly about his his life. But the interdict from Mainz means they can't operate as she wants they them to operate. They can't operate. So into battle she goes. She spends lo- lots of time doing that. Uh, the main... Uh, her archbishop is away and in... in disgrace at the moment. Uh, he will return and that will lift the interdict but she goes everywhere. She goes to Trier, she goes to Cologne, so the two competing archbishoprics that to are in the area. Yes, she thinks she's yes. got the right to bury yeah, him. She, she has relatives in Trier, she knows the Archbishop of Cologne beautif- really well and he comes to visit her. And she wins, Almut, of she course. Wins. She and, does indeed. And then six months later she dies. What would you say her legacy was at the time? We've heard a great, quite a lot about her legacy now. My legacy at the time. The legacy at the time, as the manuscripts show, is that of a visionary, of a prophetess and of an apocalyptic prophet. Uh, so that's what the 13th century manuscripts foreground, the one who'd criticised the church, um, who'd looked at the end of the world and the need to reform. So the musician is a modern rediscovery and the breadth of her writing is collected in the manuscript when she dies but isn't as present I'm sorry William, we have to go uh, Thank you very much William Flynn Mary Rubin, Armand Sabam Thanks for listening And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests Spirituality, feminine spirituality. And what about her visions? You said her, her, her uh, she's a green over there, her music goes on mm. and so on. What about these visions? Are they still taken in any way? What's the word? Shall we search for serious? It's harder work. They were popular. Because they are so complex. They were popular in a popularised version, uh, both in Sh- Shippering's popular, yeah. popularised version in Germany and Matthew Fox's popularised version in the States. But, the, yeah, but, but very, very. But it's interesting, yeah. both Catholic and Protestants will relate to her. Yeah. Because she talks mm. about such fundamental things that sort of all Christians sort of can agree upon. Yeah. That's yeah. one time I got invited to Hawaii to talk about Hillary. Hawaii. Whoa. Well, not that's a, because not of the environment. At a, not at a university, but at a, but mm. at a, a, a church. Yeah, so. yeah. What sort of church was it? Uh, Episcopalian. Oh. Really? Yeah. Episcopalian. Yeah. And wow. they had 
wanted people to come talk about Hildegard and lead them through music as well. Uh. So it's, it's is there a, is there a sort of <laughs> is there an edited edition of this massively long? Is now edited. That's yeah. the thing. The last thirty years, as you said, everything oh. has proper. Well, almost well. everything. <laughs> almost everything has proper <laughs> editions, yeah. as well as popular, uh, yeah. popular versions that can be bought. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the the translation of uh, her, her last book is still in progress. Uh, English. When English. I say edited, English. though, I mean cut down. Oh no, I meant edited in yeah, terms I know of you laid meant, out. Yeah, oh, there's a penguin. penguin. Made there's perfect. A penguin volume. Yeah, there's very a penguin. good. Yeah. yeah. So and it's yeah. it's a nice selection. So mm. so that's well worth looking at. Yeah, that's quite a nice thematic selection. Yeah. It doesn't there give you a sense of the, 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 There was a temptation I resisted, yeah. uh, but some of you didn't, did you? I know so that the relationship between Volmar and Hildegard uh, might not have been unlike that of, uh, of Abelard and Eloise. I think it was better because mm. Volmar suppressed his own ego. Yeah. And he and he didn't interfere. Really great stuff from you all uh, this morning. I, I, I think it's the real. Are you reading your tweets? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Uh, Anna Whitelock just wrote this to say that it feedback. was good. I know you like it. No, what do you mean? I mean what do you mean? You know, I like it. <laughs> no, I know you like that feedback. I just want to tell you, Anna Whitelock, who's a very good historian and a friend of mine, mm. uh, so scholarly but with a very light touch. Well, that's Melvin. There, we, there we go. Yes. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of In Our Time. We're back on the 5th of April 2018 with Roman Slavery. Hello there, we hope you enjoyed that podcast, but as Lieutenant Columbo so presciently put it, there's just one more thing. Why not consider listening to The Now Show as part of the Friday night comedy from the BBC? No, I'm sure Columbo never said that. Then he was missing out, wasn't he? It's the topical comedy show hosted by us, Puns and Dennis. All you have to do is find us wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you subscribe. Subscribe.